episode of Salty Thoughts with Tamal Dodge. On today's podcast, we are ushering in Seisha O'Connor. She is a yoga teacher, mother, surfer, designer, mango pie expert. Yes, a pie expert. And one of my oldest friends. (laughs) We grew up together side by side since birth. She is a totally psychedelic and rad person. I'm stoked to have you here, Seisha. So stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. I know. We've been trying to do this for like a whole year and it just never worked out. Maybe I just never organized it right. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't even know till Tuesday that I was doing it, so it's okay. <laughs> I just like to throw things at you and hope you're ready Surprise! for it. Surprise! Man, it's so crazy not only how long we've known each other, but how long our families have known each other. It's insane. Forever. Like, for crazy. I think about it all the time. Uh, for people who are listening and they don't know, uh, my father lived a really crazy childhood with abuse and... Uh, trauma and when he was about 15 years old he ran away from home this is the 60s he's living with some 18 year old kids in an apartment dropping acid taking drugs (laughs) and living a hippie lifestyle and uh, he hears about this uh, big rock show that's going to happen by a band called Blind Faith which was like Stevie Winwood air clapped and it was like a hippie rock band but a spiritual hippie rock band all the lyrics were very um conscious if you want to use that word but the concert was sold out so none of his roommates wanted to go but he figured he was going to still try to go and sneak in and so he shows up to this giant forum and it's sold out and there's all these hippies there with tickets and there's also a couple hundred hippies without tickets that want to rush the door and my dad's sitting out there waiting for the doors to open up and he sees some guy in the distance who's chanting and he's uh, chanting all these mantras and he's chanting with all these other people and my dad never saw anything like that before and he was like what is that about meanwhile this drug dealer named Pierre shows up (laughs) who's got one arm and he goes up to my dad and he says I need you to take this from me and he he hands my dad this brown paper bag and my dad's like what the hell is this and he goes it's mescaline and my dad's like, what? He's like, yeah, it's 500 tabs of mescaline. Hold it for me. The cops are after me. So the guy starts walking away, and my dad goes, how am I going to find you? And the guy goes, I'll find you. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad hides this psychedelic drugs in his jacket, and this cop comes up to him later dressed as a hippie. and is like, hey, did that guy give you anything? And my dad's like, no, 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 nothing, man. And the cop leaves. So my dad's like, great, now what am I supposed to do with this stuff? I'm holding this for this drug dealer. And my dad goes, well, I might as well take two. So he takes two of this heavy (laughs) psychedelic drug. And then the doors open up to the concert. And all of a sudden, all these hippies start running to try to get in. And as they're running in, all these cops and security guards are throwing the hippies on the ground. And they're not able to get in. So my dad's like, damn, I wonder if I just walk instead of run. They'll think I have a ticket and I could just walk in. So my dad just very casually strolls in and no one stops him. And he sits down in the front row. And when he sits down, he sees the guy that he saw in the front of the forum who was chanting. And the guy sits down next to my dad. And this is the 60s, so it's going to sound kind of crazy. But the guy kind of looked like an elf. He had little <laughs> curled shoes. He was short like a little hobbit. And Sounds like Venice now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> and he asked the guy, he goes, hey, man, what's your name? And the guy goes, my name's Gildor. <laughs> and my dad's like, my name's Magic Pat, man what's your deal? And the guy's like, oh, well, I practice kundalini yoga with my spiritual teacher, uh, Siddha, and he lives off on the North Shore. Um, And he also has a beautiful place on Kauai called the Haiku Meditation Center. You should check it out. And my dad's like, yeah, I'd love to learn more about this, man. What were you chanting on your beads? And the guy had these mala beads, and the guy's like, well, I chant a different name of God on each bead. Some some beads I'll say Rama, some beads I'll say Krishna, some beads I'll say Buddha. And then he gives my dad this book. He goes, here's a book written by my teacher. And it's this book called Simple Meditations. And my dad opens up the front page, but as he opens the front page, the mescaline starts to kick in. (laughs) And as he opens the front page, it goes, 
you're not your body, but because my dad's on mescaline, it sounds like, you're not your body. <laughs> so my dad's like, holy shit. And then the band kicks on, and the first song they sing is, come down off your throne and leave your body alone. So my dad's like, fuck, it's in the song, it's in the book. Holy <laughs> shit. And he gets up and he starts running around. He's one of those acid freakout cases jumping on people. It's in the book. Don't worry, the story's going somewhere. <laughs> so anyway... He loses track of where that guy Gilder was, and he enjoys the concert, and afterwards he looks back and he sees Gilder's gone, so he leaves the concert and he goes home, and he goes up to one of his roommates, and he's like, man, you have to read this book, but first you need to take two of these. So he gives him two tabs of masculine, <laughs> and then when it starts kicking in, he says, open up the page, and it opens it up, and it does the same thing, you're not your body, <laughs> and his friend's like, ah! So all night, my dad and his roommate are sitting across from each other, shooting energy balls and catching it, saying, we got to go meet this guy who wrote this book. And they're shooting these things back and forth. And they open up the book, and it says, Siddha will be at the Church of the Crossroads the last Sunday of every month. And it's just the last Sunday, but because they're so high, they're like, dude, it's not the first. It's not the second. It's the last, only the last Sunday of every month. <laughs> So they show up, and then when they show up, my dad sees there's like hundreds of hippies there, and that guy Gildor's there, so my dad's like, hey man, you remember me? And the guy's like, oh yeah, I definitely remember you. <laughs> he's like, how am I going to know who this guy is? And he's like, well, you'll know, trust me. And then my dad's looking around, and he sees this guy show up. My dad said, if you ever seen anybody that you thought looked like Jesus Christ, it was him. He weighed like 90 pounds, wore a white t-shirt down to his ankles, had matted dark hair and a huge beard, and he just was glowing. And my dad's like, okay, that's definitely the guy. So Siddha gives this talk, and then after the talk, my dad goes up to him. My dad's 15 and goes, hey, I really loved your talk. I read your book. How can I learn from you? And so Siddha says, why don't you come to my ashram on Kauai? called the Haiku Meditation Center. Sell all your shit and come. So my dad goes back with his roommate. They sell all their stuff. They take a ferry over to Kauai. They hitchhike all the way to the top of this mountain. They jump out of a flatbed truck. And it comes to this clearing in the forest where there's a giant sign. And it says, Welcome to the Haiku Meditation Center. There'll be no illicit sex, no intoxication, no eating of meat. <laughs> and my dad's reading it going, Oh my God, I do that. I can't live without that. Holy shit. And as he's reading it, he turns around to tell his friend, I don't know if I can do this. And he looks over at his friend, but his friend's already in the flatbed truck that they hitchhiked and going back down the mountain saying, sorry, man, too heavy. Good luck, though. <laughs> so my dad's like, shit, I better just go. So he throws on his little backpack, and he hikes a mile into the forest, and he comes to this ashram that's in the jungle. Outside the ashram are these two guys. One's this big guy named Big Dave who was an ex-Hells Angel. That's Seishin I know very well. <laughs> and another guy named Little Dave who was like a little acid head. And Big Dave, the first thing he says to my dad is, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> like a total Hells Angels. <laughs> and then the Little Dave was like, oh, don't mind him. He's just a grump and brings my dad in. And it's like, follow me. <laughs> Sounds like Venice. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and brings my dad into the ashram. And then when we go into the ashram, my dad gets to meet all these people. And one of the people in the ashram who's 18 is Seisha's mom, mm -hmm. Kathy. And uh, I know how crazy, right? My dad's well, 15. Well, the craziest part is they went to the same high school but yeah. didn't meet each other because of the age difference. Yeah, she was a senior and he's a freshman. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So my dad goes into the ashram and they go, you want to meet Siddha? See, I told you this story was going somewhere. <laughs> and so they go, yeah, let's go see Siddha. And they go to the outside of his room and there's a sign that's posted that says Siddha will be back into 18 to 24 hours but my dad didn't know what that meant till he lived there for a while and when my dad got to realize that Siddha would actually go into these deep trances through his kundalini yoga practice and he would leave his body and that sign would be flipped and you could go into that room and Siddha would be breathless lifeless no pulse not just for 18 to 24 hours but sometimes for three to four days and Seisha's mom was in charge of taking care of his body and everything for like three to four days, making sure that nothing happened to his body. And three to four days later, he'd come back into his body and come back to life. And that was going on while my dad was there. <laughs> psychedelic. Psychedelic. Um, so anyway, my the dad goes. The real stuff, though. <laughs> yeah. The real psychedelic, without the drugs. <laughs> so my dad goes into the room, and Sid is laying on his back with his eyes closed. And 
my dad walks in and he goes, oh, thank you for having me. Instead of has his eyes closed, says, yeah, what do you want? What do you want to do here? My dad's 15. He's like, what do I want to do? Actually, I want to become a guru. <laughs> <laughs> and so the sentence just opens his eyes, starts laughing uncontrollably. And he's like, you want to be a guru? Wow, you have a huge ego, <laughs> like a huge acid ego, man. He's like, don't worry. It's okay. Welcome. We're so happy to have you. These guys will show you what's up. So they practice real kundalini yoga. And when I say that, it's really authentic. Um, they would wake up at 2 in the morning. They'd all bathe. And they'd have breakfast. And breakfast was a hot cup of mango juice. And if those of you who never had a hot cup of fresh mango juice, go get some mangoes, juice it, and make it hot, and you're going to have the runs. <laughs> <laughs> really bad so they would talk about cleaning house like they wanted all the hippies to detox because there's no drugs involved they wanted everybody to be clean so they'd be running back and forth to the bathroom <laughs> then after the run stopped around three in the morning they'd start their kundalini yoga exercises and then they'd do the kundalini breath work and then they would do the kundalini mystic yoga exercises now kundalini means coil energy and the basis is that your subtle material body, the mind, intelligence, and false ego is rooted into the gross material body of earth, water, fire, air, ether. And when you properly wake your kundalini, it unravels the coil of energy. And Siddha was known as a real kundalini yogi. And they, when I say real, means someone who actually woke, awoke their kundalini, and went through all the chakras, and is able to leave their body at will. I know this sounds like really crazy and far-fetched, but this shit went down. And when you wake in your kundalini, it doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, man, it feels so great. You know, I woke up my kundalini when I was in that hip-hop class. And <laughs> it's not like that. So it actually burns like fire. My dad used to say, sit it. It looked like he had cigars that were put out in his tailbone, like his flesh was physically burned at his tailbone. Um, anyway, so they do the kundalini yoga exercises, breath work, and then they would have... Karma yoga, they'd make uh, a huge garden and they'd work the garden. They wouldn't eat the food in the garden because in real kundalini yoga, you wean yourself off of food as you're leaving, living in the wilderness. One of the reasons Sid only weighed 90 pounds, he hadn't eaten in a whole year. Um, and so anyway, they'd work the garden and they would sell the produce that they made in the garden in town to keep the ashram alive. And they'd use the money that they collected to keep the ashram built, fixed, all the septic tanks working. Then lunch would come around, and everyone would split a couple of avocados. And there was like 30 people in the ashram, so everyone would get one wedge. And then dinner would come around, and they'd have a glass of hot chamomile tea with the flour floating in it. My dad's like, I was so hungry, I'd eat the damn flour. <laughs> anyway, so they'd do this all the time, every day. And they'd do it for hours and hours, the meditation and the kundalini. And then one night, my dad was sleeping a couple weeks in, and... Everyone sleep in sleeping bags in the living room. Sasha's mom, everybody be sleeping there. And one night, everybody got up. It was like one in the morning, and they all went into Sita's room, and my dad's like, oh, man, how come everyone else got to go in there? I wasn't invited. Remember, he's 15. And he's like, I want to go in that room. So he gets up, and he sneaks into Sita's room, and when he goes in there, all 30 people are in that room, and Sita's laying on his stomach, and there's candles lit in the room, and a couple people are massaging Siddha's feet, and it's massaging his back, and my dad creeps in and sits in the corner, and Siddha's singing a song, Give me the body of an ant, and I'll always serve you, God. Give me the body of a cockroach, and I'll always serve you, God. Give me any kind of body, and I'll always serve you, God. And my dad was like, wow, that's a trippy song. What does that all mean? But then everyone all of a sudden gets up, and they all bow down to him, and he's never seen anybody bow to anybody. Sasha and I grew up bowing all the time. <laughs> normal. It's normal, and it's normal in India. But in our culture, it's like, what the hell is that? So everyone bowed to him, and then they left. Not only was my dad shocked about the bowing, but then he was like, fuck, I'm not even supposed to be in here. I'm in here by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, oh, my God, i got to get out of here. So he starts creeping up and tiptoeing out, and Sid is still lying there with his eyes closed on his belly. And then he felt this urge, like, i got to bow to him. I should bow. So he turns around. Not only does he bow to Siddhi, but he puts his head on Siddha's feet. And in India, that's like the greatest form of respect and the most um, incredible blessing that a teacher could ever give you is put their feet on your head. So my dad falls at his feet, puts his head on, and he just starts bawling, crying, and just dumping a lifetime or lifetimes of 
emotion, abuse and anger and frustration and just bawling. And then Siddha goes, now that you've put your head on my feet, I've taken all the karma off your back and put it on my back. My dad didn't even know what karma was at that point. He was just like, wow, that sounds good. <laughs> and Siddha's like, just go to sleep knowing that. So he does. A couple more weeks pass, and then my dad's like, you know, I gotta, I gotta go into town, Siddha, and I gotta make a phone call. And Siddha's like, don't leave. He's like, I'm, I'm not gonna leave. I'm just gotta pack all my stuff to make this phone call. <laughs> He's 15. <laughs> so my dad ends up leaving the ashram, never going back. Goes back to Oahu, hangs out with his old friends, gets drunk, steals a car, crashes into a telephone pole, gets arrested, and then put back with his adopted parents that he ran away from. They shave his head. My dad's miserable. He's on house arrest. And a few months pass by. My dad said he never remembers giving anybody in the ashram his phone number, let alone his adopted parents' phone number that he ran away from. But somehow <laughs> they called his parents' house, and they're like, oh, it's for you. So my dad answers the phone, and this guy Bahari Law calls and says, hey, you want to come hang out with Sid and I at the Church of the Crossroads, which is still to this day in on Oahu. It's like a hippie hangout bookstore place. And he's like, we don't practice kundalini yoga anymore. Siddha changed it all around. We practice bhakti yoga. You should come. And my dad's like, I don't know if I'll be allowed to. Let me ask my parents. So he asked them, and the parents say, okay, you can go out for three hours. I'll be right back. So my dad goes to the Church of the Crossroads, and when he shows up, there's hundreds of people there, including Seisha's mom, hundreds of people having a kirtan. And my dad's at the back, and he walks in like, whoa, what's going on? And Sid is at the front, and Sid goes, I knew you'd come back. I knew you'd come back. And he gets up, and he runs to my dad and gives him a hug. And, of course, my dad just starts bawling and crying. Sid brings my dad to the front, and then after the kirtan, Sid gives a talk, a philosophy talk, and feeds everybody. Everyone's eating now. Because in bhakti yoga, you can eat. <laughs> and then he asks my dad what happened. So my dad's like, oh, I just stole a car. I messed up really bad. I... I was drunk and I lived with my parents and then Siddha was very famous in that area for getting kippies off of drugs and he's like what if I asked to bring you into the ashram and you know you can live with me till you're 18 you know he's like I don't think my parents are going to go for that but he did and they did let him and so my dad was like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to him is the parents let him go back and live with Siddha until he was 18 and then my dad moved into an ashram on the north shore of Oahu with Siddha Seisha's mom, Kathy, Big Dave, and a bunch of other people. And, um, you know, my father actually looked at Seisha's mom as one of his spiritual teachers. I know Seisha knows this very well. And um, my dad traveled all over the world, all over India with Siddha and a bunch of guys. And he always, through his entire life, stayed connected with Seisha's mom. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we were raised together. Um, literally, our families knew each other since they were teenagers, and then Seish and I were raised together since we were little yeah. kids. And um, you know, your mom's always been my spiritual teacher, which I don't know if a lot of people know that. Some people do. And um, you know, I always look at she's always she was always there for my father throughout his whole life. She always had his back. And even in his last moments of his life, she always had his back. I'm going to make Seisha cry if I talk yeah, about you this. Are. <laughs> Already. <laughs> Seisha's like super close with my dad. But um, I remember my father was uh, a few days from passing away. My father had a, his heart split in half and he's in the hospital. And uh, Seisha's mom was there. And she, I remember her coming up to him and laying next to him and whispering in his ear and telling him, my dad's spiritual name was Purushatam. She's like, Purushatam, now is the time to apply what we've learned and what we practiced our whole life. Now is the time to practice everything that we've learned. And the crazy thing is, like, my father, he had an aortic dissection where your heart is split in half. He's intubated. His, you're ex this is what your body is experiencing, the most amount of pain you could ever have. And my father didn't want narcotics. He just wanted to be able to be clear through this. And... Seisha's mom, and her spiritual name is, Seisha's mom's spiritual name is Kayani. She's like, Purushatam, now is the time. And you could see my dad, he just started taking deep breaths and relaxing and grabbing his beads and just listening to her and just applying what she was saying. And, uh, you know, it's one of those really wild things where we talk about yoga station. I talk about this stuff all the time. Like, so many people think yoga is just about, you know, doing a down dog and up dog getting green juice after class and wearing, you know, tights or wearing yoga pants and yoga gear and yoga mat and stuff. But, 
you know, we grew up around yoga our whole life, and the yoga that we were brought up around, yeah, there was a little bit of asana and stuff that was encompassed, and we definitely were involved in that, but the majority of what we were raised around, the majority that we were um, engulfed in was all the spiritual practices, the stuff that's lost in translation here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seisha talks about it in her classes all the time. All the time. You know, so I know it's one of those things where um, we together, Seisha and I, are really determined to try to help bring that essence back into it because so many things get diluted when it travels from continent to continent, from hand to hand, and it gets washed away and washed out, and it becomes like this really shallow version of what the thing really was. Almost the polar opposite of what it's meant to be, I find, especially here in the West. It's like everything that yoga is meant to pull you away from, people are using it to kind of build all of that, whether it's their false ego or their judgments and their competitive drive. They get on the mat and they're using their practice to build all of those kind of negative attributes. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's like one of the most... Um, missing pieces in uh, the world today, not just in our Western culture, but just the essence of not if the word spirituality, but not like an airy fairy New Age idea of spirituality. There's there's real um, tangible qualities to what we're talking about. Um, God, you know, growing up with the people that we grew up around so many things that you know you get to witness and see and things that you get to experience yourself you know gives you the faith and i use the word faith in the sense of instead of using the word belief because belief when people oh i believe that i believe this belief changes like i was never taught that santa claus existed but kids are in the west Mm -hmm. you know and it's a belief. I believe their Santa Claus is real, but then they realize later on, whether their parents tell them or they discover themselves, holy shit, Santa Claus is not real, and their belief changes, right? Belief changes. Faith is something that is found upon experience and practice, you know? So, like, you know, you develop a lot of faith in what you're doing. Um, when you have direct experiences, and you get to witness so many wild and amazing um, deep spiritual things that are unexplainable, you know. And mm-hmm. when we talk about things that Seish and I were raised with, we we're practicing bhakti yoga. We we're practicing not even the kind of bhakti yoga you see so much practice in LA because I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've gone to like bhakti yoga things and everyone's like taking drugs and saying they need to get in kirtan mode. And I'm like, what the hell are you taking drugs for? That's a, totally one of the first things you're not supposed to do in bhakti <laughs> yoga. And, People are like, yeah, man, let's drink this whole bottle of vodka and get kirtan mode. And get. And I'm like, what the hell is happening here? It's like, you know, that even goes against Patanjali's eight sutras. So, um, you know, we were practicing bhakti yoga. It's philosophy, um, meditation, um, lifestyle. And it, it becomes one of those things, though, too. And it's on my topic of things I wanted to address with Seisha's. You know, it's one of those rare circumstances where she and I have been able to be friends our whole life because... It's really hard to find quality friends. Mm-hmm. And it's also really hard to stay on a specific path, a spiritual path, because, you know, we live in a material world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, association is like the biggest piece of the puzzle, I think. And it's if you divert and start hanging out with people that are drinking and doing drugs and partying and all that, that's going to start looking attractive. And that's what you just get into. And I've watched it with so many of my siblings and Yeah, same here. It's crazy. It's super crazy. And it, <laughs> that's the other thing too. People are like, "Well, what? Your siblings party and get yeah. all crazy?" I'm like, "Yeah, actually, you know, everybody everybody has free will and everybody has desires and everybody has things they want to do and it comes down to a lot of association. We've seen friends, families, even ones that we grew up that were super into spirituality and meditation, but then, you know, hang out with the wrong crowd, like you're seeing in like a, a TV movie, but actually <laughs> true, and it drags you down, and, and it drags your consciousness to a certain way, and, you know, you pull away from the things that you um, valued before. You know, it, it's really wild because 
um, you posted a video recently, Seisha, on Facebook, or you shared something of this rabbi. Yeah, it was just last night, I think. Yeah, it was super good. So good. Yeah, you. Um, I'll let you share because I'm kind of trying to dominate this whole conversation <laughs> like I always do. No, so I just posted this video. I some I had seen it on my wall, and it's this Jewish rabbi, and he's talking about this conversation that takes place between two people, and there's this young man eating a fish, and the teacher says, "Oh, why are you eating the fish?" And the kid goes, "I love fish." And the teacher goes, no, you don't love fish. Like, you love the fish so much that you killed it, cooked it, and put it on your plate. (laughs) He's like, you don't love fish, you love yourself. And so much of the I love you that is out there today, he translates it into fish love. And just saying now it's more a self-centered, like, love than it is actually being of service and loving that person. For who they are mm. yeah it, that's how people get into friendships and relationships Re- what can everything. i get out of you yeah exactly well, what you, can you give me what am i going to get out of this are you going to hold me up and are you going to fully support and you know it's like it's this constant battle mm. and whereas to truly just love someone he, he says to like be of service like give of yourself to that person and that's and then you, there's a little piece of you within that person and it allows you to love mm. on a deep level. So it's yeah. beautiful. It is a great one. And I watched it and I was just reminded of like how hard it is to find even just good friends, friends that you're connected with and that love you and that you love them. And they influence you in the right way. I was watching this video of these two kids and they're in some bad neighborhood and they're in a horrible fist fight they're just trying to kill each other and all their friends are videotaping and filming and cheering it on and cheering it on and there was these two kids and they're fighting and fighting and all of a sudden this adult this guy comes running up to them and breaks them up and he's like he's like he's like stop it stop it what the hell are you guys doing and they're like they're like talking about how they're emotional and he's like I can tell you are both really emotional right and you both are really upset he goes now I want you to take a look at your friends over there he goes, they're all smiling and cheering this on. He goes, friends, if they're your real friends, hate to see you upset and emotional and hurt. He goes, and they're happy. They're celebrating in your pain and your anxiety. He goes, you guys need to break it up. He goes, these guys aren't your friends. And then he starts calling out every one of his friends on the sideline who are cheering it on. He's like, I know you kids. I know you. He goes, you. And he points to one of them. He goes, your father's doing a life sentence in prison. He goes, it ain't easy out here. You think it's easy out here? This is it. This is what's getting you dragged down. This is how your father got here. He was like yelling at these kids. And he makes these two boys shake hands who are going to fight. He's like, it's shake hands and make up. Put it all aside. Stupid shit. He goes, and these guys aren't your friends. You need to find out who your real friends are. He goes, they're not your real friends. You've got to bail. He's telling you've got to leave your friends. Which is the hardest thing. It is. It's super hard, especially when you love people. But if they're dragging you down, it's weird. It's like peer pressures even out there in adulthood which is just bizarre it's like adolescence <laughs> i feel like it's almost worse as an adult yeah. it's like i mean to this day i've never tasted alcohol or, or used any in form of intoxication and as like a teenager people would be like oh that's so cool and they'd almost support me like if i was at a party or something with some friends and they'd be like oh no 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 she doesn't drink whereas now i almost feel like people are like why not? Are you sure? Come on. Just have one shot. I'm like, dude, I'm fucking 30. <laughs> I've gone this far without it. I'm not going to get into it now. Like, and it's just crazy. Yeah. I don't know if it's like LA in general or if it's just, yeah, the peer pressure is, it's crazy. Yeah. And people, people and want so you to do many. what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. It makes you feel good about what you're doing. If someone, everyone else is doing it, yeah. it rocks the boat if you're not. And it's just that thing where, you know, if people are even, not even peer pressuring you to do some kind of intoxicant, but they're just peer pressuring you to make bad life choices, Mm -hmm. bad life choices, or to live in a terrible negative place in your mind and your life. And it's just, it's about detoxing yourself from those negative places and negative relationships. And some of them are really hard. I mean, God, I've been super close to certain people, but I had to distance myself, you know? One of our really good friends, 
their kid recently was just doing some heavy, heavy drugs, and I got to spend some time with him. And he was like, I'm never going to do drugs again. I'm never going to do it again. And I'm like, okay. I go, you know, you have to distance yourself from all your drug addict friends if you're going to do that. He's like, well, what if I just, you know, still hung out with him, but I didn't do anything anymore? I'm like, dude, that's really hard to keep one foot in the dark and one foot in the light. Usually you get pulled back in the dark all the time. I'm like, that's why there's things called AA, where you're in a support system in a group where everyone's trying to make change together. You know, they don't in AA say, now, if you're addicted to crack, go hang out in a crack house all day long. (laughs) Never. They'll never hear you say that because they know association. Whoever you're hanging out with, whoever you're around is going to influence you. You know, it's even like in uh, relationships. We look at like uh, intimate relationships with like, you know, a couple. So many couples don't stick or jive together because it's kind of like the fish thing that you were talking yeah. about. You know, people are looking for, to get something out of the other person. In yoga, they have three tiers or three uh, categories for how a relationship develops if it goes all the way to three. Most time it only ends at two. But the first stage of any like conjugal relationship is infatuation right that's where people are like oh my god so in love you're so beautiful <laughs> you're perfect we never fight we will never fight oh my god we have never fought we spend every second together it's amazing we've been together two days and we've never fought it's incredible <laughs> right but then you know maybe two weeks two years 20 years pass and then you hit another wall and that wall or that stage is called tolerance that's where, like, you know what? You never take out the goddamn trash. <laughs> you never cook dinner. How come you don't? And then you hit this fighting stage, and that's where things go. And that can last a little while, or it can last years. But if you can weather that storm and get to the third and most beautiful stage, which is true friendship, which most people don't get to, you know? Um, and true friendship is you're there thick and thin. And the only way you get to that, that, that third stage, they say in yoga, is to make sure that you're both influencing each other, influencing each other on a spiritual platform. You both have a spiritual core to your relationship. Because yeah. it's like... That should be the foundation of all relationships. Yeah. Is that whether it's your partner or your best friends or whoever it is, is you're pushing each other and helping each other grow spiritually. And it's so important. And some of the closest people that I'm friends with it's because we have that as a basis of our relationship yeah yeah you got to be able to have a conversation with people like do you believe in god is there life after death you don't want to be with friends and start asking that question like why are you getting so heavy oh my god (laughs) jeez can we just do a bong hit and just go to the fish concert fuck (laughs) right so you got to be able to like get real with people and be comfortable getting real with people. Otherwise, it's just a superficial relationship. And so surfacy. Yeah, and then it's also when you honor people as being more than just this temporary bag of matter, a soul that inhabits the body, you know, a humber masmi, I am spirit. It changes everything. You know, that even with conjugal relationships, intimate relationships, you got to love the person for being a soul, not just the body cuz Anything can happen. I mean, what if your significant other, he gets in a car accident, loses his legs, and gets defigured? Are you going to be like, oh, your body changed. I'm going to get divorced now. <laughs> Sorry. you got to be able to love the soul and be there through thick and thin, and that's going to take you through it, you know? Absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I remember uh, my little sister was in Hawaii, and my my father had passed away, and we went to go see my dad's spiritual teacher, Siddha, and we're sitting out on a porch with him. And my little sister's like really young. She's like 11 or something like that. And she tells him, he, he asks everybody, does anybody have any questions? It was really a small group. It's just me, my little brother, sister, and maybe another brother and a couple other people there. And, and my little sister raised her hand and I was like, oh my God, she's asking a question. She's like a little kid. And she's like, I'm... I'm really scared of death. Like, I'm really scared of death. You know, and we all are because people get scared of death because we feel like there's nothing else. Like, this is me, this body, Tamal Dodge, this is life. 
It's this illusion that covers us. So Sita says, okay. He's like, you ever watch Animal Planet? And she's like, yeah, I watch Animal Planet. He's like, I was watching Animal Planet the other day. <laughs> and um, he's like, I watched this whole thing on crocodiles. And this crocodile, they showed it just attacking animals, and all these animals are terrified, like they're going to drink out of this lake. And all of a sudden, this crocodile launches out, and the animals are like, oh, shit, <laughs> trying to get away from him. But then they showed another shot where that same crocodile, where it was the jaws of death ripping apart these other animals, came across the lake and opened its jaws, and out of this nest come all these baby crocodiles, and they happily hop in the mouth of the mother, and the mother keeps his mouth open and swims across the lake and gently drops him off to the other side of the of the lake. And the little crocodiles were all happy. The little crocodiles were not terrified at all. They looked at those same jaws as home. And uh, Siddha tells my little sister that if you have a strong spiritual practice, if you meditate, pray, chant, offer your food, and start making your life a spiritual life, there'll be no fear at the time of death. Yet when you reach the time of death, the jaws of death will just be like a mother crocodile and you're going home to your mother. But if you have no spiritual practice, you'll be like those other animals where the jaws were leaping at them. You're like, oh my God, I'm dying. And uh, it's just a really amazing analogy. And I remember her getting super happy. And, uh, you know, Seish and I is one of those people throughout my life where I'm like, we can talk about whatever. Everything. Everything. You can get yeah. down. And, um, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit together um, about, you know, not being the body, life after death, reincarnation, and maybe we'll address some other things as we go along. But, you know, I remember taking your class not too long ago, and you're reading quotes about not being the body in the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, I know you try to infuse it in your yoga classes to help the student body go further and start a spiritual practice so that hopefully it demystifies death and demystifies that feeling like everything ends. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because death, I mean, has become such an unknown in our culture and our society. It's something that we try to avoid. We've come up with things like plastic surgery, Botox to prevent the aging of the body because we know that the body is aging, which means ultimately it's going to come to an end. But in the Vedas, it's, we're taught that when the soul takes birth in a material body, it's only guaranteed four things. And that is the experience of birth, disease, or some sort of sickness, aging, and then ultimately death. Because everything that is material is temporary and it never lasts forever. It's finite. And so... And so many cultures, I feel like, are open to that, especially in, like, India or something where yoga originated. Whereas here, we've come up with terms like YOLO. You only live once. And so, <laughs> you know, but it's like, it sets the mind up for like, oh, well, this is it. Shit. And then nothing's ever talked about, well, what happens when YOLO ends? <laughs> you know, what's at the other side? So... It's definitely a very important topic, I think, that people become a little bit more comfortable with. It's because just with anything, it's like if something's foreign or you don't know a lot about it, it's very uncomfortable and it's very almost nerve-wracking. Whereas if death can be something of the material body that becomes familiar, then it becomes unmysticized. It's no longer a mystery and it can be a little bit easier to talk about it and approach it and yeah yeah it's I remember you know being a little kid and trying to swim in a pool and scared shitless because you don't know what the hell is you're gonna drown or what's going on but then you get in a pool for a little while and you realize it's no big deal right yeah it's like you don't talk about death especially in a, our western culture as soon as if you look at how we cover up death you never see dead people right if you do, it's usually at a funeral and they've got makeup on and they look even weirder. <laughs> it's like that cadaver has like makeup and a suit on. Yeah. What the hell's going on? Or it's right? covered with a sheet on the side yeah. of the road after an accident. Everything is covered up, you know. And you go to like third world countries and all of a sudden you see like a dead horse rotting on the side of the road. And people, Americans like, oh my God, 
Richard, are they going to clean that up? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like, you see it everywhere in other countries. It's like my dad in India. He's like, I remember in the late 60s, early 70s, my dad was used to say in the late 60s, 70s, I remember going down into India and you'd walk down an alleyway and it'd just be filled with lepers, people with leprosy and people dead all over the place, rotting. I was like, oh my God. He's like, death is just in your face, thick in the air, you know? And it leads you to question. It leads you to open your mind. Um, It's like Socrates was fearless about death. He's arrested. They're about to poison him. And he looks at them. He starts laughing. And he says, you're going to have to catch me first. (laughs) And they're like, what is he talking about? You're in handcuffs, sir. (laughs) (laughs) You're about to get poisoned. He just thought it was hysterical because they really thought they were going to kill him, just killing the body. Um, he was so rad. If you read yeah, Socrates, Socrates stuff, he was like straight up, right out of the Yoga Sutra stuff. Everything he talked about was not being the body, eating a plant-based diet, all these morals and ethics, deep philosophy, deep spiritual experiences. Um, but anyway, we'll keep moving on. Um, so most people have this extreme idea that in order to be spiritual, I have to sell all my stuff, don on some robes and move to the Himalayas, right? But it's really not about an artificial renunciation. Um, You know, it's about how do you dovetail all your actions into becoming spiritual actions, you know? You could sell all your stuff, don on some robes and move to the Himalayas and be living in a cave, and the whole time you're going... God damn it, I wish I had my coat. Why didn't I sell that? Why didn't I bring the coat? It really is a warm cup of Starbucks right now. God, (laughs) I need a latte. Why am I here? (laughs) You know, so it's not about an artificial uh, renunciation. You could give up everything you want to give materially, but if you're not giving up your internal desires and the internal baggage and luggage, you're never going anywhere, you know. And that's where the real work happens. Some of the deepest, most spiritual people you know, I've met, still live in urban environments. I remember there's this story about this incredible, incredible um, spiritual teacher. And he asked uh, another spiritual teacher who he should go see. And he said, oh, you need to go see this guy. And he lives in such and such residence. This is all in India. And so this great spiritual teacher goes off to meet this other guy that he's never met before. He shows up and it's like an amazing palace. And he's like, what the hell? And he walks in the palace and the guy he's supposed to meet is wearing like perfect silk robes and has a mustache and (laughs) slick back hair. And he leaves. He's like, what the hell's going on? He leaves and he goes back to the other spiritual teacher. He's like, why did you send me to that guy? Like he has like such material opulence and he's living like this high life. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you need to go back, sit with him. And you need to start reading him some yoga scriptures and see what happens to him. He's like, okay. So he goes back, shows up to the beautiful palace, meets the guy. They sit down talking. And then he opens up a scripture and he starts reading it to this guy. And then this guy just starts going into what they call samadhi, which is spiritual trance. And is exhibiting these insane... Um, emotions and body movements of somebody who's in deep connection with God. And then afterwards he left and he went back to the, the other teacher and he's like, now I know why. He's like, that guy has all that stuff. It doesn't mean anything to him. He is just highly enlightened being. He doesn't give a crap about the palace. He just has, happens to have all that. You know, All he really cares about is the spiritual essence. So it's really not about changing your looks, your sky, your clothes, the internal changes absolutely um and it really just boils down to having a solid spiritual practice that that comes into play and doing it in your home i mean ever since i was young it's like they we were always taught to make your home the temple you don't have to go join a temple or an ashram and wear certain robes or saris and dhotis and in order to become spiritually enlightened it's really about putting in the work. And when I say work, it's just like everything else. It takes work. And you have to be okay with that. So many people want the easy way out when it comes to spiritual life. 
whether it's in religion now, it's like everybody goes to church on Sunday, they confess their sins, and then they're back and on the street doing the same shit they went to church for on Sunday. <laughs> but they can go back on Sunday because it's, it's okay. They can just confess their sins and start off with a clean slate. Whereas that's not really the point. It's like when Jesus initiated Mary Magdalene and forgave her of her sins, she didn't go back out and continue whoring herself. She made some deep, life-changing, spiritual practice changes that she implemented, implemented day in and day out. And it comes back to that dovetailing, just doing everything in essence to be of service to God. Mm, yeah. And my dad was in India. He was walking down a trail with his teacher, and his teacher stopped everybody and pointed to a tree, and he says, See, you don't need a temple. You don't need a church. You don't need a mosque. Just sit under that tree and find God. That's all you need. Sit right there. So, yeah, we, we were, when we were kids, it was just about, yeah, you have to make those changes. You got to make um, you got to make your heart a temple because even if you don't have a house, you can be homeless and still connected. You know, you got to make wherever you're going a temple. And um, it's not about spending an hour on Saturday or Sunday or on a Friday or wherever. It's about a continual process of everything you're doing in your life is being with spiritual effort, with God consciousness. And uh, that'll, that'll change your life in the best ways. Always in the best ways. And, and it turns away from being work. In the beginning, it tends to be super challenging. I mean, because like, people listen to me and like I don't use intoxicants. I'm born and raised vegetarian and they're like oh my god what do you mean like I'm not gonna be able to eat meat anymore and I can't drink or do all this stuff but in reality it's like those are all things that aren't good for your body yeah. and they're definitely not good for the soul or the mind or the consciousness so like if you can just implement even something as simple as that taking that out and clearing the mind the consciousness so that you can see that going from ignorance to enlightenment as they say you know just pulling yourself around you either understanding that you either upgrade or downgrade your life <laughs> and either put yourself in higher consciousness or lower consciousness and it's the balls in our court we make those choices and those decisions and yeah people are always like oh my god it's just how am i ever going to have fun if i can't you know smoke weed and do these things and you know you can do any of those things anytime you want you have free will to do it i just choose not to and the craziest thing is, is you'll find that, for instance, one of my friends, he's like, I just need to, I just need to like check these things off the bucket list and then I'll, I'll be happy and I can just start doing spiritual stuff. I'm like, that's not how it works. It's like, let's say you have a bucket list to do this one thing and then you have a bucket and they have another thing on the list to do this one drug. Let's say you do that drug and you do this thing, you think you checked it off your bucket list, but it didn't fulfill you. So usually it just makes you want something more and you go well now let me add one more thing to that bucket list and you keep keep going further and further down the dark rabbit hole when if you start to give yourself some control they talk about in Pantanjali's eight sutras there's a lot of things that he asks of you to control yourself and people think they're super heavy because they are it actually helps you shred material desires it makes you change your bucket list from material bucket list things to now you have spiritual goals and spiritual desires, and those are the things that you want to accomplish. It changes your consciousness. And then let's say you had a material bucket list, and all of a sudden you changed and you wanted to do spiritual things. Now you created a spiritual bucket list. You'll go back and look at your old material bucket list and go, thank God I didn't do some of those things <laughs> on that list. Oh, my God. What, was what the that hell thing? was that thing? <laughs> it changes you because it changes your consciousness and changes your desires. We are running out of time. Um, what do you got cooking? Meaning, what do you got? Maybe pie, but no, we'll get to that pie. later. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of pie, always. Um, well, we have our retreat in Bali yeah. coming up next month. Um, I just shot with Yoga Journal this past week, so I'm actually going to be on the cover of the June issue that's with awesome. a little spread. So that's super exciting. So after that, things will be shifting, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But yeah. That's kind of where I'm at, and always being a mom to Nikula, so yeah, just always busy, twenty four seven. I feel like it's kind of crazy because 
our parents knew each other when they were teenagers and Sage and I were raised together, but now, now we, we both have, have two boys. We have two boys that have been born and raised together, third yeah, generation. That's, that's so crazy. awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> and they're best homies. Um, anyway, anything you want to share? Any last words to our listeners? I mean, yeah, when it comes to spiritual practice, it's like that's really the only reason I started teaching yoga. Because um, growing up, asanas are not required to progress your spiritual growth. Um, And I really got into the asanas when I got pregnant with Nikula because I couldn't surf and I couldn't do all these other things that I would normally do to keep my body healthy, which the asanas are really just there to keep the body healthy, um, to keep the temple healthy. Um, But over the course of that, I realized that the asanas and the pranayama, the poses and the breathing techniques They're really just meant to be used as stepping stones to a deeper spiritual practice. Um, So whether that is a solid start off with five or ten minutes of prayer meditation in a day. I mean, it makes the biggest difference, whether it's first thing in the morning and then maybe right before you go to bed. Just trying to implement it throughout your day. It makes the biggest difference. And... That's, that should really be the goal, not getting into a handstand or even touching your toes in a forward fold. It's like that stuff, in the end, doesn't matter. The moment of death, holding a handstand isn't going to get you anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I like when Brian Kess teaches his class. He goes, just because you can put your leg behind your head doesn't mean you're a happier fucking person. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally yeah. true. Because I feel like it's so much the opposite now. All those people that can do all that extremely amazing stuff, their ego is so big that you can't even have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But Yeah, just implementing a solid spiritual practice and dovetailing everything that you do throughout your day, offering it up as service. One of my favorite quotes is from um, a Native American chief, but he said, every step you take should be a prayer. And if every step you take is a prayer, then you'll always be walking in a holy and sacred manner. That's awesome. Yeah. We'll end it on that note. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Seisha. Thank you, Tamal. Namaste. Namaste.